This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au is the place you can find them. They're one of Sydney's best catering companies. They've pivoted to home delivery of delicious food that you used to have to actually cater for huge events. Now they can deliver all this delicious food to your home catered events with your growing number of people that you're allowed to have in your home in the greater Sydney area. Go and seek out their staff. They're great people. Glenn and Maria are wonderful. We appreciate them for being a part of the show this entire time during this entire pandemic. So support them. Bellacatering.com. Dot au. Guys, thank you for listening to One Heat Minute Productions. We have a banger of a week again. Great guests coming up. Great shows coming up in our feed. The final episode of Increment Vice, the 45th episode, is this week. Do not miss it. Subscribe to One Heat Minute Productions. You can listen to it. It's been an amazing series with our host, Travis Woods. Get on that and subscribe, rate, review. We have a banger of a week. We've got great shows coming up. If you can support us, check in the link. But now, here's the show. I am the least racist person. I can't even see the audience because it's so dark, but I don't care who's in the audience. I'm the least racist person in this room. Okay, Vice President Biden, Abraham, let me ask you very quickly and then I have a follow-up question for you. Abraham Lincoln here is one of the most racist presidents we've had in modern history. He pours fuel on every single racist fire. Every single one. He started off his campaign coming down the escalator saying he's getting rid of those Mexican rapists. He's banned Muslims because they're Muslims. He has moved around and made everything worse across the board. He says to the, about the poor boys, last time we were on stage here, he said, I told him to stand down and stand ready. Come on. This guy has a dog whistle about as big as a foghorn. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me today is someone who I would almost rather tell you where they haven't written for as far as prestigious publications in the United States than actually list the the credits. Um, but my gate guest today has written for Salon, LA Times, Variety, The Atlantic, Slate, Wired, now a Rolling Stone. Sorry, I forgot Rolling Stone. Great time out, New York, RIP. Um, is the host of the All About a Modivar podcast and also writes for The Hollywood Reporter, which you would see regularly. Uh, very recently put up the bat signal to say, I want to be on more podcasts. And this is someone who I've read repeatedly, especially TV criticism um, uh, all over and uh, very recently has a great piece on the Nexium cult, which is just, uh, uh, I mean, if you have, haven't already been fascinated with the Nexium cult or haven't heard about it, seek it out. There's different streaming options for you to check it out right now. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome Ingu Kang to All the President's Minutes. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Hi, thanks for inviting me. So tell me now, <laughs> tell me now as someone in America, wait, someone in wait, 20- wait. I feel I feel like I actually have to ask you a question first. Please, please go. This is the journalist leaving out. Why is an Australian man so obsessed with a movie about Watergate? It's not just that it's a, a film about Watergate. It's more that it's just an incredibly well-made film. So like Watergate okay. is like the, Watergate is absolutely part of it. It's like, it's almost like inseparable, but it's, I think Inga, you would have these films or TV shows where just like every single thing in it 
every single piece of a film and they rarely happen, but it's so perfect. And so like harmonizes with who you are when you receive it, that it's like, this is special. And so for me, that's what this movie is. So it starts out with, you know, the, the, the very basic things are Watergate is fascinating. Like Watergate has amazing stories. And, you know, for folks who like consuming different things like Leon Nafark, slow burn, um, which then became a TV show of itself, you know, like it has tells all the wonderful stories that surround Watergate. We know how fascinated American culture was with Watergate and then all of, obviously all of the Watergate Senator trials and then what happens to Nixon. But for me, it, it, it became as like as an entry point into this era, but also largely that it is so laser focused on these two people who start out not being very great at their jobs and then are consumed by this pursuit and consumed by the, I don't know the the gravity of the situation that they can influence that they have to like get better. They're guided and they just work tirelessly to make an outcome. And we're just, we're in on their journey on the ground floor for so long. So yeah, it's this weird harmony. Like I, I watched this movie and I know that it's about Watergate, but it feels like it's about so much more than Watergate. Like Watergate is the tipping point. Um, but yeah, that's, I, it, the only way I can say it, it's just like, it's much like my first minute by minute podcast heat. Like it's a, that's an LA quintessential LA crime story, human drama. I'm based in Sydney. So, you know, people would be like, why are you so like, why have you got such a deep affinity for it? But I think it's just, there is something about the, whatever frequency this movie puts out. Um, it continues to catch me just everything from the most micro detail in the production design to the script, to the performances, to, how it all, you know, the sort of symphonic quality of it all just working perfectly together. Um, that's why I love this movie so much. Okay. I don't think I like this movie. <laughs> that's good. <laughs> um, you can like put me in the ejection seat now. <laughs> no, no it, 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 you have to pressure test. If you really love something, you need to talk to people who don't love it as much as you. That's part of the process. I think there's like a very 70s quality to it that I I can see like the appeal of it just like personally does not appeal to me. Yes. Um, this is also the first time that I have seen this movie. Yeah. So perhaps if I have, perhaps if I watch it 200 more times, I will <laughs> gain a greater appreciation for it. But I think at least by like the standards of 2020, like it's really slow. It's yes. not telegraphed very well. And I think as someone who definitely did not live through Watergate um, and also did not, do not know really like all of the granular details of it, it's really hard to follow along what exactly is happening and how exactly Woodward and Bernstein are uh, building these blocks together to get to where they need to go. Yes. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of those things where, um, and I think... James Vanderbilt, who wrote Zodiac, like talks about it because they, you know, often Roger Ebert called, you know, coined the phrase that Zodiac is like the, you know, the serial killers, all the president's men. It's kind of that um, there's a quality that if you sort of trust the professionals as you're watching it, and this is so hard for me to do because I've now seen this movie so many times, but it's like the first time you watch it, I absolutely agree. Like you don't, the names that now resonate later, if you've ever then gone down the rabbit hole to research or read a few, like read the actual books, just even the books that Bernstein and Wood would have written, but also then the other commentary that's happened around it or Nixon books and things like that. Cause there's such a fascination around Nixon. 
um, and even, you know, Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of Chicago 7, you know, has John Mitchell um, um, uh, in there who's also sort of a tangential character. In this movie, it's like you you don't pick those names up. Like, you don't, like, you, you kind of, they're talking about these names and it's almost like as they're saying them, especially on that first watch, you're like, I didn't catch that. I don't know who that person is. I don't know why they're important. Um, but I think that the movie succeeds or fails. And for you, it didn't really succeed as well. But like, I think it succeeds and fails on your ability to kind of go, all right, well, I don't, I'm not going to get this all now, but they seem to know what they're doing. You know, the, the professionals that are leading us, they seem to know what they're doing. They seem to be able to like say what's important. Certain characters get elevated that in there that they eventually get to interrogate and you're like, yes, this person's important and this is why. And then you sort of go along, but you know, and, and it doesn't surprise me. Um, someone such as yourself who is so consumed with like the day to day TV, like pacing, why this movie would be like a little bit too slow. The movie I kept going back to while watching this was Spotlight. Yeah. Um, I think it's shot very similarly in a lot of ways. But also Spotlight is a movie where you always know what's at stake, right? Like, I mean, it's sort of blindly obvious, so you can't get away from it, which is basically child sexual abuse. Yes. I think with this one, especially from the vantage point of 2020, the fact that some Republican operatives uh, snuck into a hotel room in order to leave some bugging devices. Like, it just seems so quaint. Very quaint. And so the fact that you're supposed to sit through this two hours and change movie about the fact that, like, this very quaint thing happened, it's, like, it's almost sort of like like a true crime parody at this point. (laughs) All of these people are so riled up uh, about this like very tiny thing. Yeah. Look, um, I spoke to Matt Zolazites, who's uh, a great critic for Vulture and obviously Roger Ebert, a common Matt's like, like it, you know, at the beginning of 2020 um, or even like at the beginning of the Trump presidency, you could look back on Watergate and see sort of political malfeasance, you know, uh, political espionage in the context of Watergate. If you just sort of look back on it and go, wow, these are like, this is really dark stuff. This is bad, you know, spying on your political opponents and sabotaging their election campaign. That's really significant. But I absolutely agree with you. The, the one major thing in 2020 is uh, it's just like, this is, we've had 20 Watergate level, maybe in the last five weeks have probably had 20 Watergate level (laughs) revelations um, and none of them seem to stick. And that's just the, it's actually a massive part of the ongoing dialogue of this show is just how quaint like it it feels and also how, how overwhelming it is because for like the paradigm for, I guess like political malfeasance or political sabotage or just, you know, I, I, you know, in a very uncouth way, I say like just political fuckery just in general is Watergate, like spying on your political opponents, sabotaging their campaign. Whereas, you know, I think a few times it's been referenced on the show, like people who, um, when Trump uh, during his, the final stages of his campaign, they're grabbing by the pussy revelation. So like, Oh, that's our Watergate. Like he's gone. His campaign's shot. Obviously Hillary's going to win. This is, this, you know, this campaign is going to go down in history as this anomaly, this sort of populist last gasp anomaly to sort of clean, drain the swamp and use all of those terms that his, his campaign in 2016 was so associated with. But now you get to this time and you're like, wow, you know, who cares? There's probably, <laughs> this, this wouldn't even, this wouldn't even make the, the top story of the day. 
And it didn't at the time, but it wouldn't, certainly now it wouldn't. But I think that's also part of like why the movie seems so much more built for someone who had all of this really fresh in their minds as mm. opposed to someone watching this many decades after the fact. Mm. Not only are a lot of the names and the importance of those people lost to history, I think that the other thing is that the ending of this movie is so bizarre. Yeah. I, like, especially for someone who doesn't remember everything that happened because you see the story basically sink like a stone at the end of the movie. And then you basically get through some epigraphs, the fact that Nixon resigned. And that's a whole other six months of stuff. <laughs> and if you're coming into this fairly cold, um, you are sort of like, what? <laughs> Like, where's the other second <laughs> half of this movie? I saw on Wikipedia that apparently uh, William Goldman sort of asked the second half of the book for adaptation. Yes. And that's fine. But I think that it just sort of, it doesn't quite make narrative. It does, the narrative cohesion of this movie is something I really had a lot of trouble with, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I found it hard to enjoy. Yeah, look, it it's it's hard it's super hard for me to like distance myself, but I want to say like, I think you're feeling something that is absolutely relevant to anyone who's viewing this for the first time now, because I think, and even, and even myself at the time um, viewing this for the first time, and I think I would have been in university. So it's probably, I'm, I'm going to say like 15, like, let's just say like 15 years ago ish, like in my early twenties, I was in university. And that was the first time that I saw it. And I absolutely had, you know, and in Australia, other than knowing like I'm not a crook and that Nixon was resigned or Nixon was ousted, like that that's my only reference point at that stage in my life. And it just so happened that I was a bit obsessed with this whole new Hollywood era and looking at, you know, the political influences that and then how they reflected through, you know, the fall of the Hayes Code and how this whole burgeoning, you know, new Hollywood era sort of opened up and new filmmakers that now sort of our established, you know, elite filmmakers that all sort of started to emerge. Um, and so I, I had just like learn that lesson, but I think it, it would be much the same way as, you know, the craziness of this film is these guys are writing the book. The events of the film are happening sort of in 72, 73, um, or the, the events of the reporting. These guys are writing the book and it is sort of pre, in pre-published mode and Robert Redford as an actor and a producer is talking to them before the book is published. And he's saying, I want to make this into a movie. They're shooting it in 75. And they're releasing it in 76. And so it's this crazy thing of only two years before and even up to that time in, in the wake of Watergate after Nixon resigning, like still there was the fallout from all of the people who were imprisoned and had Senate committees and, and were on trial in the media. Um, like uh, someone's referenced it in the show before, um, the kind of the, the bookends of history was so fresh in people's minds that it was like, we're just going to take this little window into these guys and their role specifically in this story. And it seems to make more sense. But like you said, now, if you're looking back on it and someone had all these books and all of Bob Woodward's history and all of the history of Nixon, that would make a completely different, it wouldn't be a movie for starters. In our world, it would be a TV show. You're, it would hit your beat, right? But this would be like one, <laughs> this would be one episode of a longer TV series that would be like, this is Nixon getting elected. And this is the political sabotage and this is when the post finds out and these characters that appear in like ep four and then like you know the revelations that it was nixon it'd be the end of the first series and we move into the second series where all the fallout starts to happen you know and i think that that's the way that you'd have to approach it now but what is kind of weird about this whole story is 
that close proximity to that close proximity to actually being produced when it was made, it's so fresh in people's minds that you don't need to belabor the point. Like everyone knows about it. And as you look about and you reflect on it, you can kind of go, wow, that's really smart. It's really sort of almost avant-garde like to end it and little epigraph basically with the biggest part of the whole story that ends with like one line of teletype. But um, it's kind of that, you know, it was necessity was the mother of invention for those guys when they were making it is to go, okay, how, how do we not sort of, um, how do we make people interested in seeing a window into this story that they haven't seen before, but without repeating things or having to like have a problem of like, well, we've got to cast the Nixon and you've got to cast all the people in the white house and you've got to show the internal struggles. Like they don't have any of that. They're just like, well, if we just focus on these guys, we might be able to tell that story better. I agree that, you know, I mean, HBO does these terrible TV movies every two years <laughs> about politics, right? Yes. And like none of Jay Roach movies, none of Jay Roach's movies are going to stand the test of time. They barely stand the test of like that <laughs> night. But I don't know. I just like did not particularly like this movie. I think part of the other thing is that there's this like very 70s oiliness to parts of the scene, especially when there is like literally any man who is interacting with a woman. Yeah. Mostly Bernstein and Woodward, who are basically just like wearing down the resistance of all of these women who know that they are not supposed to be saying the thing that they're saying. And like, on the one hand, I understand that that's part of what journalism is, is yeah. sort of like wearing down the resistance of people. But from sort of a gender dynamic point of view, like it made me so uncomfortable. And I really hated this early scene where Bernstein has, I don't know, some sort of like lunch or something with this like very attractive woman who's not very bright. And it sort of like is, is there essentially to show that he's like more of a ladies man yes. than Woodward is, even though Woodward is like the more conventionally attractive yeah. guy. And apparently that scene just like never existed. And it was like Nora Ephron, Bernstein's like girlfriend at the time who like wrote that scene in and William Goldman for whatever reason decided to keep it. And I was just like, this is PR. And also it's <laughs> bad PR. Um, so there's a couple of things uh, for that research is there are definitely scenes that were written about that. They wanted to lean on Bernstein's ladies man uh, quality that scene did happen and it did happen at the, um, I'd been saying the Q hotel incorrectly, but one of my, um, one of my listeners corrected me, the W hotel, um, in Washington, um, was where it actually occurred. And I think it did happen, but you're absolutely right. There was a version in the midst of production where there was like an alternate script that was provided by Efron and Bernstein himself to sort of like, I guess, beef up the Bernstein part. They wanted to have more influence over how he was going to be portrayed because kind of in some ways the anchor of the story is Woodward, but at the same time, it's like they are really co-leads. They kind of get their different scenes to shine. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, this is one of the reasons why William Goldman almost like, he's like, I never want to write a movie like presidents again, because he had such conflict. He had people writing scripts on the side. He had to sort of take bits and pieces. He had Redford influencing. He had Pacula who's the director influencing. Um, but yeah, no, that's exactly precisely part of the, the film that I wanted to talk to you because this scene that we're, we're sort of in on um, in now I'm in 112 um, and one hour, 51 minutes on the dial, if you guys are watching and we're going to queue it up and listen and watch it together shortly. But 
these guys absolutely um, are extracting information from women who are in positions of knowledge, but they're not in positions of power, nor are they in positions of influence. And they actually. Or culpability. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily culpability, but like there's a, there's a, the challenge is that they're kind of, the they're kind of the biggest influencers and truth tellers in the whole movie and they have to have this information extracted and they are the most vulnerable to that because obviously these people if they're willing to sabotage political campaigns and do all the things they're doing and you know and journalists lives are potentially in danger like they know the stakes are huge there's an amazing scene with um uh with hugh sloan's wife um and i'll just get the actor's name i've just uh, it's escaped my mind just for this quick second where they walk up to the door it's meredith baxter she plays debbie sloan and they say, oh, it's really in his best interest. And she says, she's at their front door and she says, no, it isn't. Like it's, and, and Woodward has to admit to her, no, it's not. No, no, it's not. Like it's not in your best interest. It's in our best interest. And you are putting yourselves at risk, whether it's reputationally or financially or whatever, to, to tell the truth against these people. But that's, you know, I'm, I actually am kind of giddy that you didn't like the movie because it's been really fun to talk to a lot of people, but it's good to get challenged. It's really good to challenge this movie because obviously the standard by which that we measure things in 2020, we, you know, we cast our eyes back and we reflect on it and we look at the gender dynamics differently. So it's awesome to talk to you now to sort of talk about that because this, this particular sequence when they're, when Sally Aitken played by Penny Fuller, um, who's one of their reporting partners gives them this huge nugget of information she puts herself at risk by sort of revealing this personal relationship and they ask her really forthright and brutal questions that don't take any account to her emotion or to her vulnerability. Um, they just kind of use her as a source. And she even says, you know, I guess I don't have, you know, I guess I don't smell blood like you guys do, you know, uh, there is ruthless. And so it's, it's, it's a really phenomenal sequence. So guys, Ingu and I are going to watch the scene right now. You guys are going to listen along and then we're going to come back and talk about it. An awfully good reporter. I don't remember her getting that much wrong before, do you? Look, that's a real bullshit question. With that is a question straight out of Wichita, Kansas. Listen, uh, one last thing. Do you remember where this shooting debris took place? What do you mean, where? Well, I mean, was it a restaurant or her apartment or a bar? Or... Now, look, I've forgotten the entire incident, but it most certainly wasn't in her remember apartment. when the incident took place? I don't place. have time for this. I'm a busy man. You get all that? What did he say about meeting in a bar or a restaurant? He said he forgot the entire incident. That means he didn't deny it. It's a non-denial denial. Wichita, Kansas. Yeah, he said that's a bullshit question. What, what, that's a question oh, I know what he said, but I'm from, I'm from Wheaton, Illinois. Hey, Bob, you think Bob. Could... he's on the phone. Who? Get over there and mine for a French five this week. Four. Yes, Ken. Sally, for Christ's sakes, don't tell them I came to your place. Why not? What's wrong with... There it is, Ingu. This kicks off the incredible Robert Redford is talking to Ken Clawson, who's Nixon's communications advisor, um, about an interaction that he's had with reporter Sally Aitken, um, played by Penny Fuller, where he admits to writing what's known as the Canuck letter, which is a, a letter that sabotaged the McCluskey campaign and the Democrats. And so he's asking some details about this conversation where it happened. And obviously it's vulnerable for him and a source of, a, a, a source of much anxiety for him because he's um, uh, done it to maybe show off uh, to a reporter that he's written this letter. And 
never expecting that it was going to be followed up by some of her reporting colleagues. And um, he hangs up the phone and then starts to call her again. It's just a, the way this whole scene is staged, the way that everyone is listening over to each other's shoulders, the way that Penny Fuller, Sally Aitken staged in the background of the scene. I just love, I love the, I love the beautifully orchestrated chaos of this scene. What do you, what, what, what are your immediate feelings when you see this scene? I feel like all of the things that you have to, like basically your entire description of that scene illustrates how far we have gotten from like the break-in. Yes, yeah. <laughs> because like all of the things that you have just mentioned have nothing at all, at least on the surface level, to do with the break-in. And I think that's part of what was probably really powerful about the movie at the time. Yes. That like there's this like giant uh like array of details and it's Woodward and Bernstein who are able to create a constellation between these random seeming dots right but I think that's also what is so hard to get into now also like do you know if that relationship between that reporter and the Nixon aide was real yeah yeah, that was, that's, uh, well, at least that's the way that it's documented in the book. So it's, it's reporter Sally Aitken and, and Ken Clawson, who was the, uh, sorry, just to clarify, um, it was, he was the White House Director of Communications um, for about 11 months in 1974. Um, and so, yeah, he, they, that at least had an interaction and a relationship and that's how they received the information from her. Um, so, and that's how it's sort of documented in the book and, and they have that dialogue and obviously it leads into the, the subsequent stuff in the scene, but I don't, I don't know how but much. Like did they actually have like a sexual relationship or did I, they have like a journalistic I, I think it was, I think it was journalistic, but I think the inference was that it was sexual, but they don't, it doesn't really, doesn't really go into explicit detail, not only in the film and the movie, but it sort of implied that, yeah, like there was a bit of a, you know, she was seeing him on the side, I guess, would probably be the be- nicest way to, and most delicate way to say it. Which is like a complete trope of like the movies, right? In yes. like a way that is like pretty demeaning about female journalists and how yes. they get stories. Yes. Anyway, the 70s-ness of it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, and, and that's, and that is exactly the same. That's the same sort of, and I spoke to even another great film critic, Noah tell about it, you know, earlier in the film, there's another great, um, uh, there's another great scene and I'm just going to um, get the, the character's name, but there's um, another great scene that happens with Lindy Krauss who plays Kay Eddy, uh, Lindsay Krauss rather. And Lindsay Krauss, they, they again, utilize a, what was a former relationship. She was previously engaged to a person who worked in this Nixon department, the community to reelect the president, which has got the best acronym title ever creep. Um, and you know, she has to ask him for this bit of information to reveal this, you know, confidential sort of list of employees for creep, which helps propel their investigation and gets all those, you know, continuing slamming doors in their faces. But there is the bargain that if she has to see him, the implication is that if she has to see him again, they may have to, you know, have her an interaction. It might be uncomfortable. There might have to be sort of a sexual encounter for her to get that information. And the guys are sort of asking her to do it. And at least Bernstein for the beginning of that moment is like, well, it'd be really good if you could do it for us. That would be great. You know, thank you. Da 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 da. And then Woodward actually has to sort of go, no, the morality of the situation is no, we don't want you to do anything. It's going to make you uncomfortable. And in the end, she does it anyway. 
And so it's one of those things where it's like, there is a really, you know, of their time and for better or worse, the portrayal of women in this movie is, you know, it's, it's dated of course, but it's like, there's some of those things that happen in this movie that has some weird, um, uh, or, or at least, you know, I think a better words dated, like dated sort of ideas are like, you know, what, what it's a female of its time. Yeah. It's of its time. It's out of time. But now. Like I, I mean, like, I think there are things of its time that feel accurate, like all, almost all of the women that we see are secretaries that like completely <laughs> makes sense to me. And then there's other things that are very like cinematically of its time, if you know what I mean. Yes. Like it's all like stuff that people have done in the making of like movies to make it more dramatic or more interesting. And I think that's like the kind of thing where I was like, <laughs> yeah. I think that the other thing that I found really startling about this movie is that with the internet, we all assume, I mean, like this is a movie about research, right? Mm-hmm. And so we all assume that people like now are completely fucked privacy wise and people before had it so easy. And when Woodward and Burn can start doing their research, they get they managed to get all sorts of dirt on all sorts of people. And it sort of made me realize, oh, if like someone was really determined to get you, there is no such thing as privacy anyway. And if they can't get it through calling up like a librarian, they will just ask like a woman who is like next to uh, them at like the, what do you call it? Like the, the news pen or whatever. Yeah, the bullpen in the, in the, in the. Yes. On the, on the <laughs> but, but, but you're right. Is it like, it's, it's way harder. Like it's not the click of a Google or a Facebook stalk, you know, it's not something like that as, as things do. If you, if you share anything on social media, it's like using your web of contacts who may have interacted with them. Tell me about this person. Tell me who they're like, tell me what they're close to. And you know, the, the sort of, um, the very unglamorous, but it's very glamorous in this movie repetition of like countless hours of phone calls to a whole bunch of different sources that you may have, or, you know, do you know a secretary in the office? Do you know what they're like? Do you know if they've, do you know, do you know if they're seeing someone on the side? You know, that's one of the best questions. Do you know if they're contactable? You know, if I can speak to them Um, and sort of using, you know, those different people, but yeah, it's definitely harder, but it's definitely not impossible because I think that especially in the context of this scandal, people are compelled to talk. And the crazy thing is in the context of 2020 with Bob Woodward, he's like, he's talking to the president of the United States about his pandemic response in a series of private interviews or 18 hours of interviews that happen for this forthcoming book rage, um, which is out now. And Donald Trump is saying one thing in white house press briefings and then coming into an interview with a journalist who's writing a book and is saying the completely opposite thing. Like he's just saying exactly what people are saying that he should be saying in those press briefings, but he's just like going back on it. And so it's this weird thing where, I don't know, some people like are compelled to talk, even if it's not in their best interest to talk. It's sort of this weird balance that you keep seeing and play out in the media at the moment. I think that whole thing illustrates to me how different selling newspapers is versus selling books. Yes. But in any case, um, I think that the other thing that's notable about this as a procedural, especially compared to so many other procedurals that are being made now, is that, <laughs> this is going to make me sound terrible, um, I feel like so many of the journalistic techniques or 
basically like fact confirmation techniques they use are super sketchy. Yeah. Um, I think like a really good example is they're talking to one like really disgruntled secretary and she doesn't want to say anything, but they need some names confirmed. So they say something like, I'm just going to say like a letter. It's an initial. And if it's the right one, you can say yes or no. And that way you're not actually saying anything. And then it sort of seemed to me wild because I don't think that that would fly today. And I think what is probably fun about this movie, especially at the time, if especially if you don't really care about journalistic ethics, is that you can sort of like see them like coming up with on the fly ways of getting their sources to talk without actually talking. Yes. And so I think I understand that like that's supposed to be fun. Like, but also it as someone who works in media, it like completely squicked me out. And so I think that's just like another element where the there's such a disjunct between like what I think I'm supposed to get from this movie versus what I actually get from this movie. I think also, you know, and this is where I would say this is the only benefit of ever watching it multiple times. It's like the actual information about, you know, some of the architecture of this conspiracy, they definitely have to eke out with like lots of tricks. But what's great is like, you do still hear the ethical discussions of like how many sources have you confirmed this with? So it's not like, you know, sometimes, you know, even Bradley and, and the whole team that's in his office, um, you know, whether it's Martin Balsam's um, Howard Simons or Jack Warden's Harry Rosenfeld, it's like, they're, they're going, we need four sources on this. So you might have someone who breaks the story, like the bookkeeper, which um, Jane Alexander plays and her, her, the, the real woman in real life, the bookkeeper character is a lady by the name of Judith Hoback Miller. She may be able to paint the picture of these are the five people who are in charge of, you know, the committee to reelect the president. But then it's like, once they have that, that confirmation seems to be a vastly easier thing than someone actually painting the picture of what, this is so like you hear them and then later like calling sources okay yes we've confirmed that he had control of the money and we've confirmed this and we're using sources when you don't have to be the one when you can be like anonymous and just confirm that something is the case as opposed to breaking the story i think that's where that trickery but i think you make a great point which is there is inherently this weird kind of manipulative con that is happening with journalists and it kind of still happens that sort of still resonates of like i'm trying to eke out i'm trying to get you to just give me that information that you maybe is on the tip of your tongue and maybe is in that filter that says I shouldn't share this. I'm always trying to like get to that point where I'm getting that information from you. And I think that sort of like anti-heroic gloss that uh, Goldman and Pacula are giving Woodward and Bernstein is something that like, I don't know, like maybe like felt more interesting like in the 70s when you have these like very like lionized figures who brought down the president right like they weren't household names i don't think like like pe- people don't know what they look like and so the fact that they were able to sort of give them these like very cinematic qualities probably also really helped but again watching it from the vantage point of 2020 when i don't know about you i'm just like tired of anti-heroic men um, <laughs> I'm just like, okay, like I completely acknowledge that this is maybe one of those things where something doesn't feel fresh because it was so 
good when it was new that everyone stole from them and oh. now like it sort of like lost a lot of that power R- relent- R- relentlessly stolen from <laughs> no, <laughs> oh, oh no i'm i'm not gonna you know if anyone in the world is tired of anti-heroes it would be a journalist whose beat is TV criticism because it literally it's like since, <laughs> yes. since, since Tony Soprano and since, you know, Al Swearingen and whatever, like, you know, those sort of quintessential HBO like icons. And then like, obviously you're breaking bad. Like there have been so many things that have tried to rinse and repeat and cut that thing in a different way. And it's just like, I, I, I can completely get it. But, but I think even, even by the time, even by the time you hit, you know, the difference between the early 2000s and 2020, like there is so much of that, like the, the the procedural makeup of this movie and the way that it's structured and how it kind of injects itself into history. And then that's the history actually be its bookend so that it doesn't say big things that seem obvious, are definitely more difficult reading and um, nothing about your appearance on this podcast uh, or, or you being a guest on the show is me convincing you that this movie is great necessarily. I, I'm just sort of saying unequivocally that it is and you can agree or disagree and that's totally fine with me. I'm still having a great time. Um, but I, I would just say to you like, um, that's, that's definitely something that I see. So when you talk about spotlight, I, you know, which, which has definitely grown on me, I didn't love it as much. And again, I think it's much like the post, I didn't love the post as much. And then you can sort of appreciate it for what it is because I've been tainted by this movie. Like I watch all the president's men and I'm just like seeing any journalism movie for me now that I've ever watched, whether it's shattered glass, whether it's the insider, whether it's, you know, I mean, you name it, the paper, um, the, the weight of all the president's men and sort of how that sort of genre buster um, can kind of break the future iterations of that. Cause they're all kind of, even if they're not directly referencing it, they're like contending with the fact that it exists. Um, it definitely can get tiresome. But for me, this is where it like it hits. There's something about that, that weird elliptical quality of this script and the way that the procedure works and how it's injected in history but you don't get to see these huge machinations of what actually gets influenced. You just kind of get to see these guys kind of not be great at their job and then eventually nail it to where the point that they need to execute and start to have these hugely influential, you know, bigger than cinema stories that are breaking from the paper. Um, that's my, my big takeaway. Obviously it's dated. It's a, you know, that's part of it. I don't, I, um, I think that when you measure, that's one thing I don't necessarily like, I think you can absolutely discuss it, but you can't like measure can't measure a 1930s movie against 2020 standards and expect that it's going to hit all of our things pitch perfect in seventies is just as bad. Um, but I, but I, yeah, that's, that's where I kind of come in on it is like, I see this movie as that and, and, and it's such a, a vital part of what's to come because that's how people try and contend with stories from then on. I really want to know after I watched this is, uh, is Woodward still a Republican? Yeah. Is he really? Yeah, I think so. For many years, he has been on the Republican side. He's definitely had, um, he's almost had a standing and, you know, you, you made the quick comparison before where, and we kind of skipped past it of like the major difference between selling a newspaper. And obviously now in the internet age is like pumping out stories for a website that people would like tons of people are going to be reading vastly different proposition to someone who's reading a book, right. And having so much time and breadth to like go through that, um, for many years, he's kind of had a standing agreement for almost every administration. And even the, the democratic um, administrative leads of those different um, uh, 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 sort of uh, 
different periods of history have like always been open to Woodward coming in and talking to their staff and talking to them and producing these books, but also been wary of, you know, this is a journalist who's coming in to cast his, cast his eyes and cast his microscope on what we're doing and trying to, you know, and trying to find things that are maybe, you know, that, that is in the public interest um, and also obviously in his interest for making their books. But yeah, I, I think he was, a, he would probably have called himself a Republican for many years after that, but I don't know if he necessarily, um, he's always seen more of a conservative guy. Like if you, like the Carl Bernstein that still exists, who's still writing for CNN seems more like a radical dude than Woodward. Like Woodward is part of the furniture, part of the establishment. So like, if I had to assume, I would say he's like more conservative leaning, but after 18 hours of conversation, I mean, I don't even like reading tweets from Donald Trump. So having 18 hours of conversations with Donald Trump, that's got to turn someone's political belief because man, he would just, he'd almost make you want to end it right there on the phone. It would just be absolutely awful. I think one of the things I found a little surprising about this movie is that you don't get too much interaction between Woodward and Bernstein in terms of them getting to know each other as people. Yes. Because the movie sort of starts with this classic buddy comedy setup where one of the guys is like more of a square and the other one is more of a hothead. And so I was expecting a little bit more detailing around that and you don't really get it and the only time when I really felt like I got sort of some like little hint of their character and I don't know if this is like in the movie or not is when uh Woodward is, is explaining to a disillusioned Republican that he is also a Republican and so like he's sort of explaining why his pursuing of the story is not a partisan issue bernstein sort of says really and then like <laughs> yeah, no, he, he doesn't say anything but he he does a triple take he goes huh yes it's uh, like the only maybe like funny <laughs> moment in the movie it's very funny and it tells you so much about like where bernstein is coming from and it tells you so much about where Woodward is coming from that like he doesn't think it's notable that he's a Republican. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was like the one moment where I was like, oh, maybe I will enjoy this movie. But then <laughs> out, no, not really. Well, look, you thought, that you, <laughs> you thought this was going to go for three minutes and we're like, well, 40 minutes into the movie. It's, 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 um, but you know, like I, uh, this is where I think, and, and this is just part of the design. So it's good to talk to a new person about it, but part of what they wanted to do was like, not necessarily play them off, just have them doing their job and you receiving the information of those two guys. And also part of what they wanted to do is this weird sort of harmony together uh, where they would, as the movie progressed, they started learning each other's lines. This is just like a pure formal quality where Woodward would learn, I'm um, oh, sorry, Redford would learn Woodward's lines and Bernstein's lines and, and, and Hoffman would learn Woodward and Bernstein's lines as well. And so what would happen is there's sort of like a breaking point where they've got very distinct, you know, personal traits. And it's almost like thinking that Hugh Slow Hugh Sloan scene, the one where he says I'm a Republican, where they're not like really completely in sync. But as the movie progresses and they become in sync, and even in this sequence of like writing down a question that Woodward has already thought of, which is just so wonderful about this scene, um, they start to trip each other up and they start to repeat each other. Or one of them might interject and say half a line that was meant to be with the other performer. So I think that that part of it was like, these are two very different guys, but part of their journey is how do they 
how do they melt. start? Yeah. How do they melt together? How do they start to like have a bit of that relationship where regardless of their personal stuff that's going on and you only kind of get small details. I agree. Like, you know, the major thing, you know, one thing that sticks out to me now a lot when I watch it, but particularly when I watch it for the first time is like, Oh my God, Woodward's apartment is trash. Like, it's just like, he's got paper everywhere and you go to Bernstein's apartment and it's really opulent. Like there's a piano and it looks like, you know, he entertains. And I've since had a few guests of the show say, Blake, well, the inference is that Bernstein is a ladies man. It looks like he entertains more women at his house because it's at least clean and nice. And, and Woodward, who's a bit of a square is like, Oh, he's just messy because that's who he is. Um, he's not thinking about the outward look of the place necessarily. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I think, you know, despite you not wanting to watch it and being sick of the American anti-hero, I completely uh, understand um, you may not wanting to watch it again, but I think that that's what I've found about this project and about this film is every time I watch it again, it is a kind, it's the kind of movie that rewards multiple viewings because of the detail that I think that you can penetrate onto it. And even after like a cursory rabbit hole uh, Wikipedia of like different characters and people. Um, I think that that's where you can kind of start to penetrate it. Um, but you know, from that 2020 vantage, as you talk about, I just don't think they would ever make a movie like this, uh, because you know, uh, it, it would much more be like, we're going to make a long series. It's going to be seven series on Netflix or Amazon or something like that. It's going to the Nixon fall is going to be in series four. And then, you know, these reporters, and then there's going to be flash forwards and whatever. You know, it might be like the crown um, where they just, you know, show Woodward in a few years time, like talking to Trump. I don't know what they would do, but it, you know, it, it just wouldn't, they would, they wouldn't let someone take, you know, they wouldn't let Goldman synthesize what he found as the essence of this story in the first half of the book without the climax and say, this is where, this is where the unique perspective is. This is right now where these guys aren't really that great we don't know all the detail and I loved what you said that kind of consolation between random dots, like finding that this story, piecing it together. I just don't think that would kind of let it happen. And, and, and that's the best kind of throwback for me. I'm, I'm kind of like, as a, as a fan of procedurals too, I kind of like some procedurals are so rote that you can guess it like 40 seconds in. And I think anything that like starts to shake up your expectation of where it's going, um, ends up being really, really fascinating. Um, you know, for and rewatchable because you, it kind of doesn't function in that same like rhythm that you're so used to. Well, I can't wait to watch the Trump version of this <laughs> where that we get like in five years. <laughs> and it's actually 2000 journalists working on 2000 different <laughs> stories. And then it turns out like Woodburn and Bernstein's, none of them land. Yeah. That's the difference between the Trump stories. It would just be a, a series of vignettes, like one of those stupid holiday movies where it's like 2000 journalists telling all these stories and every single one of them falling on their ass because no story, everyone is dwarfed by the next story and nothing seems to matter. Um, and it's kind of the, you know, it's, it's, it's a strange note that the movie ends on, which is both devastating and hopeful, which is that as they're sitting there typing, Nixon is being sworn in for the second time. They're sitting there typing. They know how deep this thing goes. They know how high it goes up and he's still reelected. Um, and so as we're recording this, people are going to hear this very quick, you know, in the next couple of days, probably even a day after Australian time that we're recording this um, uh, in goose. So it's really interesting. And I want to thank you so much for being a part of the show once again, but secondly, also say it's going to be a really interesting that 
this show. I don't and, want it to be a prophecy. Yeah, the ending of this show is gonna it's gonna cross over into uh, into November and actually go a little bit beyond the US election. So it's gonna be a really interesting tonal shift potentially in the show um, for either positive or negative uh, in the results. But um, it's been a real treat talking to you. It's so lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being a part of it. Thanks for inviting me. This was my first like minute movie podcast, as I already told you. And I wasn't really sure how it was going to go, but I think it went okay. <laughs> this is the perennial journalist reviewer. You've just given yourself an okay. I think this is great. So we'll just have to meet somewhere. <laughs> have to compromise somewhere in the middle. I'm a hard critic. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Me too. That's why only t- it takes me a long time to choose the the films that I think are really um, of that next caliber. Look, thank you so much for being a part of the show, um, and uh, and I really appreciate it. Now, I mean what I say when I say that I really enjoy people who don't necessarily love this movie and can help put it under the scrutiny that it deserves. That's exactly what we're doing. We're putting this movie minute by minute under the microscope. Sometimes they're not going to get as loving portraits there, but I was so grateful for Ingu Kang, who is a terrific critical voice in the you know, in our online cultural universe and such a great person to chat to. Thank you, Ingu, for being a part of the show. Guys, if you want to follow Ingu, it's at... I-N-K-O-O-K-A-N-G on Twitter is the best place you can find her. That leads off to a bunch of the other sites. Obviously, if you just go to all of your favorite podcasting apps, you can go to all about Almodovar podcast. That's her show. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, rate, review. It helps. Thank you uh, for being a part of One He Minute Productions and supporting us. Again, we've got the finale of Income Advice coming at the end of the week. Do not miss it. And this show rolling in to the final stages as we speak. Thanks so much for listening. If you can support the show, please do um, uh, monetarily. There's a donation link, but if you can't, subscribe, rate, review. That's enough. Talk to you guys soon.